Let us pray. Gracious Father, you give life to the dead. Lord, we are dead. In the waters of holy baptism, we have been united to Christ's death. Our life is now hidden in him until he comes again. Help us to believe, O Lord, this wonderful voice of truth, this wonderful promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Sunday, I said that the world calls our trust in God cheap grace. I went on to say, of course it's cheap. If we earned it, it would not be grace. I misspoke last Sunday. Grace is not cheap. It's free. By calling it cheap or valuable, misses the point altogether. Grace is free. It's God's gift to us. It's God's yes to us. Grace is free. Now, the world does not like these words, free grace, because they think that Christians will abuse this gift. The funny thing is that Jesus doesn't seem to mind. He isn't afraid of giving the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation. Jesus isn't afraid of eating with sinners. No, it's the older brother. It's the, it's the Pharisee. It's, it's those hard, cold Christians who have a problem with these things. To them, to us. Jesus must say, cut it out. Your brother was dead. He's alive again. The name of the game from now on is resurrection. It's not bookkeeping. I like that quote. It's resurrection, not bookkeeping. I think I like it for many reasons. I had to take two accounting classes in college. Never again. No, it's resurrection, not bookkeeping. And yet it seems that the world is consumed with bookkeeping. We keep records of everything. We keep records of pledged delegates. How many lives have been lost in the war? The price of a barrel of oil. Come on, you know the answer. How much on Friday? 138, 140. Yes, we keep records of these things. We also keep records in our relationships, in our marriages. How many times have you winced? When your spouse said to you, do you remember when you, <laughs> right? He's had to fill in the blank. You're like, oh, I remember. You don't let me forget, right? We keep records of these things. So much for the saying, love keeps no record of wrongs. We even keep records in our religion. We can recall all the good works we've done. And we can even list all the bad deeds our neighbors have done to us. We are obsessed with bookkeeping. Did you hear about those three pastors, a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Lutheran, who discussed what they would like people to say at their funerals? The Baptist preacher said, I'd like someone to say, he was a righteous man and a good preacher. The Presbyterian minister said, I would like someone to say, he was a fair man and a good thinker. The Lutheran pastor surprised him when he said, I want someone to say, look, he's moving. 
Amen to that. It's resurrection, not bookkeeping. Resurrection, not bookkeeping. But we're obsessed with bookkeeping. The people of Israel were obsessed with bookkeeping. They measured themselves by how well they did, how well they kept the law, how well they fulfilled their religious duties. Their hero of the faith, their example of righteousness, was Abraham, the father of their faith. They would pull out these statistics about Abraham. You know, Abraham left his country, did not know where he was going, but he trusted the Lord to take him there. It's righteousness. Or they say Abraham was circumcised at 99 years old. Talk about faith. Or they'd say Abraham waited until he's 100 years old. 25 years after God made the promise to have his child. That's righteousness. Or Abraham was willing to sacrifice that very son, though the angel stopped him. That's righteousness. Or finally, that Abraham was even able to purchase the first piece of land in the promised land. Oh, that Abraham is a righteous man. For the Jewish man, if he wanted to be righteous, he should act like Abraham. They would probably wear a slogan, WWAD. <laughs> what would Abraham do? And their answer would be, obey the law, be circumcised, and do many good works. That's how you're righteous. Times haven't changed. We fall into that same trap. In fact, there's a couple problems with it, and that's why I call it a trap, because it's the wrong way of seeing Abraham. The first problem is the, the chronology is wrong. You see, Abraham was justified 430 years before the law was given. Right? Abraham's at the very beginning of the Bible. Moses is until Exodus. So, so he was justified before the law was ever given. He couldn't be justified by following the law. Second, well, what about circumcision? Well, he's justified in chapter 15 of Genesis. He's circumcised in chapter 17. So he was justified. He was declared righteous before he was circumcised. Or what about good works? Well, up to chapter 15, ah, his works are so-so. I mean, he does leave and go to the promised land. But do you remember the first thing he does when he gets to the promised land? Right? He's trusted God to take him all the way to the promised land. And once there, there's a drought. And what is the first thing this righteous man who believes in God's provision, what does he do? He goes straight to Egypt. So much for faith, right? I mean, so this man, this righteous man, didn't have many good works on his side before he was declared righteous. The timeline doesn't add up. The law, circumcision, good works, it's not going to make you righteous. The second problem with Abraham is that in chapter 15, he was declared righteous on the very night in which he probably had the most doubt of his entire life. Genesis 15 tells us this. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, 
and a member of my household will be my heir. Does that sound like the words of faith? <laughs> Sounds like the words of complaint. And then it says, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be heir. And God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then God said to him, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Do you think Abraham could ever see the evening sky the same after that event? Do you think when he looked at the stars, he wasn't in Midway City, so there's no glow over there <laughs> in the dealership. When he'd look at the sky at night, what would he be reminded of? That in the midst of his faithlessness, God came down to him. God spoke to Abraham. God gave him a promise, reminded him of the promise. And then God gave him a sign to hold on to, to hold on to that promise. Do you think whenever he doubted, he'd probably, do you think he'd probably go on walks in the evening <laughs> to be reminded of that event of God meeting him and to look up at the sky and saying, thank you, Lord, for declaring your promises to me? Abraham was declared righteous. I mean, you say, Abraham, it was after this that he believed. And how could he not? God came to him. Of course he believed. And then God said, well, I declare you righteous because you believe. I mean, that's the mercy of God. God comes to us in our, in our doubt. God jumps into bread and wine. God says, for you I'm here. For the forgiveness of your sins. Right now you might not believe it, but you can taste it. Taste and see. Smell it. Drink it. Know that you are forgiven. That's the mercy of God. It's not by doing righteous deeds. It's by God who is righteous. And this is important because the mercy of God does not keep records of wrongs. A record of wrongs. The mercy of God looks like the relationship parents have with their children. Parents. Suppose your child were to ask you, Dad, Mom, what must I do to be your child? Is there some law, some deed, some program that you can suggest? Should I read the Purpose Driven Son book? <laughs> or attend a Sun Keepers event? Will that finally make me your child? Parents, how would you react? You would grab them. You would probably first weep that they'd even say that to you. And then you'd grab them. And you'd say, there's nothing that you can do. Listen to me. Believe me. You are my child. I love you. I will never let you go. That's the mercy of God. Even when your children are terrible, you can't let them go because they're your little ones. 
Or when they're sick and you're helpless, you know what it's like, and you just you want to make it all better. God's mercy is that he loves us as children. It's not by doing that we're made his children. It's but by God's act that we're his children. It's resurrection, not bookkeeping. The Lutheran pastor was right. The point of life is not to have people say how good you are. The point of life is to overcome the grave. Abraham knew this. Abraham was justified because he believed God gives life to the dead. Listen to Romans 4, 16 and following. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Abraham is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promises of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God has the power to do what he promised. That, this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. These words are really important because it says, against all hope, in hope, Abraham believed. Now, what in the world does that mean, right? Other translations say, in hope, against hope, Abraham believed. Or Abraham believed in hope, against hope. I mean, you're sitting there going, what in the world does this mean? It means this, that when Abraham looked at his situation, he knew that being the age that he was, his body was as good as dead, and that Sarah's womb was dead. And the language isn't, it's important because Paul changes the language here. He could have used barren, but he doesn't. He says dead. And the reason is then, Abraham knew that if he was going to have a son, the only way he could have a child at all was if God intervened, if God would raise out of the dead. And so Abraham had faith in the God who can raise from the dead. This is 1,800 years before Christ. He had faith in the God who can raise from the dead. And that's the point of the passage. You see, Abraham knew he could not fix it. They were dead. Dead people cannot make things alive. That's the point. The law cannot bring life to someone who's dead. Circumcision cannot bring life to someone who's dead. Good works cannot bring life to someone who's dead. The dead don't need morality. The dead don't need sermons. The dead don't need rule books. The dead need resurrection. And that's what Abraham believed. He believed that God is the God who raises from the dead, that God is in the resurrection business. And that's why he was justified. Now, I have some good news for you, some great news. 
You see, God is not a bookkeeper who sits there and goes, oh, oh, that was really bad this week. Put that on your account. No. God's not a bookkeeper. He's a resurrector. That's why he sent Jesus. Jesus came to raise the dead. The only qualification for the gift of the gospel is to be dead. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be good. You don't have to be wise. You don't have to be wonderful. You just have to be dead. That's it. And so hear this good news today, Reformation. Guess what? You're already dead. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 6. In the waters of baptism, you were united to Christ's death. You were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in newness of life. Or Colossians 3, you have died, and your life, not you will, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Or Galatians 2, 20, you have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Now, I want to give you one quick point. Do you wonder why, an illustration, why people put a pall over a funeral, over a casket? Have any of you ever been taught why a church does that? Any idea? Any guess? Right? When they bring it, you have a casket, and they put the white pall, the white thing over the casket. Do you know why they do that? What's that? Well, yes, it could be. Yes, it is. And even more than that. A baby's baptized. What does a baby wear? A little white gown that covers the child baptized. And so then, then that's where the death begins, real death united to Christ, death resurrection. So then at your funeral, you have a casket and you put the pall over. Why? Why? Because the real death happened there. This right here is the metaphor. The real death happened there. God claimed them. God grabbed them. God united them to Christ. That's where the real death happened. And so we put the pall over it to point to the hope that we have in Christ. That God is not a bookkeeper. God is a resurrector. That we died. And we're alive in Christ. In Christ. That's why we do that practice. I, you know, we don't have one at this church of Paul anymore because someone had broken in, he homeless man, he covered himself up, he got into the cabinet and started drinking the communion wine and spilled all over it. Part of me is shocked to say, that's terrible. The other side of me said, he's closer to the truth than he realizes. <laughs> so we need to get a Paul. We do. For no other reason than to remind us That we are dead in Christ, but that means we are also alive, which really means we are free, which really means the law can no longer accuse you. Your life is in Jesus. Rejoice, for you who were dead are alive again in Christ. Talk about free Grace. Now, I want to end with this final thought. Remember how I told you that Abraham 
purchased one piece of land in the promised land. He was the first one to purchase a piece of land in the promised land. God promised the land. Abraham, towards the end of his life, purchased one piece of land. Do you know what that kind of land was? Do you know what it was? What kind of land it was? Jackie knows. Do you know? It was a tomb. It was a tomb to bury his wife, Sarah. Why is this important? Because Abraham knew the real promise of the promised land was not the land, but the one who promises to raise the dead. It's resurrection, not bookkeeping. In Jesus' name, amen.